Oh man, what a pleasure to be here. I just, I have so much love for this church family. I have so much love for so many people. I could just, I would lose half the message if I started naming all of you. And so just thank you for welcoming me here. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for all the fun of the last conference. Thank you for inviting me to stick around this morning. And um, Van is correct, which by the way, Van, you were so funny there. I've never seen you so funny. I loved that. I was like, not to say you're not funny. I was just like, wow, that's, I love it. Um, Van's exactly right. We're going to talk about the church. And specifically, the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, what, like, what is this thing that we call the church? Um, My experience is most people feel actually kind of fuzzy on that. Now, they might have some kind of an answer that they could give, but it usually rings a little empty. It's like, well, I know the church is this, but it, like, there's a difference between having an answer and perceiving the reality of something. And, And I think we're coming into a time in our country when it's really important that we are connected to the reality of what is the church. Because our context is changing in really significant and really dramatic ways. And if we're fuzzy here, it's actually only going to be detrimental as we go forward. Um, I'm, a, I'm a physics background guy before the Lord called me to ministry, so I like data, I like charts, I like graphs. I want to start by showing a few charts and graphs that highlight our um, sort of current cultural moment. Um, so here's a few statistics that I find interesting. You guys have those in the booth, right? Or, or, yeah, okay, cool. So here's a few statistics that I find interesting. This is research done by a group called the Barna Group. They do all kinds of research on Christianity and what people believe in, in the, well, in the States and actually I think around the world too. Um, and so there's some interesting things. I want to um, highlight the first one. Go ahead and throw that first slide up here. This is a graph of uh, the last, you know, pre-COVID, 20 years of uh, our country, who, who considers themselves a practicing Christian? Now, the red line is the one I want you to look at, because that's the practicing Christian line. And what's fascinating to me is it's hovering between 40 and 50% until you get to about 2009, and look at that thing. It drops off a cliff. And by the time you get to where we're at, it's come to almost half of what it was. Somehow, between 2009 and say, I don't know, 2013 or so, half the people in our country who considered themselves practicing Christians stopped considering themselves practicing Christians. Half the people, like in the the last decade, that's a really crazy, like that chart should keep you awake at night. <laughs> or at least keeps me awake. It should keep them awake at night, maybe, if not you, right? But no, like what on earth is doing that? Now, um, why don't you throw the next one up? This is a church attendance chart. And you'll notice the same thing. Now, it stretches back a little bit further. But look again at that window, 2009 to about 2013. You've got, woo, <laughs> Half of it disappears. 
Well, I mean, that makes sense. If half the people who consider themselves practicing Christians no longer do, of course, church attendance is going to go down. Okay, there's no surprise there, maybe. But it's, it's an interesting statistic. Here's another one. Go ahead and flash that third one up. This, is, this tells a bit of a concerning story. And so what we've got here is this is weekly church attendance over time, again, but it's segmented by generation. So you can see the top line is, is the elder generation. That's the generation before the baby boomers. The yellow line's baby boomers. Lighter blue Gen X. Red is millennials. Now, again, you'll notice, you know, like starting in that same window, you see things beginning to decline. But what's scary about this graph is not just that things are sliding downward. It's that each generation starts at a smaller number than the one before. So we're not just losing the elders or losing the boomers. We're actually losing the entire generation at the same time. So there are a group of people who are disengaging, but then added on top of that, each next generation that comes around just engages less to start off with in the first place. That's not some good things to look at. <laughs> And, and as a data guy, you know, I, datas tell stories if we understand how to, how to, how to work with them. So, so I start wrestling with, well, what's the story? Like, why, why, is, why is this where we're at? And, you know, there's a few things that I can probably cross off. Like, okay, so has Jesus failed? <laughs> right? I mean, did he start losing to American culture in about 2008? I don't think Jesus failed. I, I, I just can't, I can't imagine that. He's still crowned king of the universe. Okay, so has the gospel failed? Like, is, is the gospel no longer have the transformative power that it had before 2008? Oh, of course not, right? Like, it, that, that's, a, that's a silly premise. So, okay, then what, what is happening here? Well, the only answer I can come up with is not that Jesus has been dethroned, not that the gospel has failed, but, but the, the continual um, target of the church to be a part of God's project, as, as Wilson articulated, requires an ability for the church to find a way to plug into the culture and help the culture realize that Jesus and the gospel is what we're really looking for. That like the need you feel out there, you, you don't actually know the right label for it. You think you need more money, you think you need more friends, you think you need more stuff, you think you need more whatever, but what you actually need is Jesus. You just didn't know that yet. And so let me help you understand that and let me help you meet them. That's the continual project of the church. But our ability to kind of manage that interface has a whole lot to do with our capability to effectively reach people. And what I see this story telling me is that generation by generation, there's something about that interface that's starting to come unglued. There's something about that that's getting less effective, less concrete, less clear. Now, I don't think that that's for no reason, and I don't think that it's for purely simple things like, oh, I don't know, like American morality is whatever. 
sure, American morality is in the picture, that's fine. But I think, I think, to me, it feels like what's going on is actually a little bit deeper than that. If you look at the way that societies and cultures grow and develop over time, like if you step way back and you take like a century's view, right? So we're not looking at individual lifetimes. We're looking at the story of Western civilization over the last 800 years, say. What you find is that society does not change in this kind of slow, incremental, moving gradually upwards into, into a new state. We, we can kind of think that way. We tend to think that, that progress and change is a, is, a, is a linear process, but that's not usually what happens. Change in the way it works in our societies is more like a stair-step process. It tends to not have a lot of change and then have really dramatic change and then not have a lot of change, and then really dramatic change. It would be nice if it was this linear thing. We might want it to be this linear thing, but that's actually not how it works. And so if you look back over the course of Western history, there are these moments like, for example, the Renaissance, when what had happened was there were like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in Europe where society was really, really, really stable and not a lot changed. And then all of a sudden you come into the 1500s and everything changes. Christopher Columbus like discovers the new world and that kicks off a whole set of things. Science is invented. The arts are like rediscovered and flourish in a way that they were never able to flourish before. Capitalism begins to be developed. The idea of nation states begins to be developed. Like the whole world goes boom and jams into a new gear in like a short window of time. And then that kind of levels off and another one that you run into would be the Industrial Revolution. You hit the Industrial Revolution and the whole shape of the world dramatically changes. And that kind of levels off. Well, we are living in a time where we have lived the experience of one of these to one of these. And it's largely been shaped by that thing that Van mentioned earlier, technology. Remember he said, I read an article, <laughs> we're all going to have phones in 15 years. I never thought I'd see the day. Well, yes, that's true. And why don't you go ahead and put the graph up. Here's the, the, the graph of iPhone sales. Now look at this, look at this, look at this. When does that start and when does it peak? At the exact time the church decline is going the other way. It's the exact same time, and why is it? It's because with smartphones, the digital revolution becomes personal. It becomes connected to you. Before, it's a thing on your computer, on your desk. You can turn it on, you can engage with it, you can disengage with it. But once it's living in your pocket, it has grabbed you into its shape and its reality. And so what happens is that they're at the sort of mid of the first decade of the 2000s, society goes from this to crank and starts going into this place. And what winds up happening is this changes, just for fun, throw Facebook up there too. That's the next slide. You see the same thing, look at that. 2008. So what's happening here, I wanna propose, is 
the reason that, that this unglued thing is beginning to happen, it's because the shape of the world is changing. That's what happens on the vertical things on the stair stuff. The shape of the world changes. And that doesn't mean that the church can't begin to find its way into the new shape. It totally can. It has at previous steps. The, the, there's a reason that the Reformation, one of the most important series of events in church history, happens at the same time as the Renaissance. There's a reason that the rediscovery of world mission happens at the peak of the Industrial Revolution. These are correlated events. So it's not that we have, to, we have the story where it's like it's coming unglued, it's all going to disaster and bomb, and this thing is over. Christianity is done in America. That's not what those grabs have to tell us. But what they do tell us is there's a divide that's growing, which means that we as a church, we have an opportunity to do one of two things. We'll either get defensive and circle the wagons, in which case we've, we've kind of inscribed our own tombstone. Right? Because the world is going somewhere, and we've just said, I'm not going to try and find a new shape in that world. I'm going to hang on to this one in the old world. And so we come across as archaic, irrelevant, unneeded. And we'll never get out of that shape if we don't move forward. So we can circle the wagons and get defensive and protect what we have, which isn't going to end well. Or we can begin to embrace a spirit of adventure and press forward into the unknown and try and explore and find what does the new shape of the new church in the world on the next plateau begin to look like. Church has done it plenty of times before. Why can't we do it now? We can. But if we're going to do that, what we need is we need to be tuned in to what actually is this thing called the church. Because if we're going to start doing stuff different, how do we know if we're actually doing church or not? And so we've got this interesting cultural moment. And what's fascinating to me is that what gets added to this, sort of maybe the exclamation point on, on the story so far, is that this thing called COVID has also really highlighted this, right? Like the conversation of COVID happens, everything gets thrown up in the air, another level, and then there's all of this stuff It's like, okay, well, like, how exactly is this church thing working post-COVID? Does it matter if I'm here? Does it matter if I'm not? What exactly am I supposed to be doing with this thing? What exactly is this thing supposed to be doing with me? If we don't have a clear answer, then what winds up happening is we wind up just having this like unhelpful conversation where it's like, you should come to church because we need you. And because it's the best thing for you even though you don't know it. You ever heard anybody say that? I've heard some people say that. You have better pastors than that here probably, but you know, like if you flip on a podcast from another church, you might hear someone say that. So, okay, what is this thing called the church? Well, what I want to do this morning at first is I want to actually shoot down a few things that we might think of the, are the church, or even we might act like are the church, even though we would tell you that's not what we think. 
And I would tell you if we're acting like it, it is what we think. It's just we don't think we think it. <laughs> okay, so first one's kind of obvious, and it's this. The church is a building. Now, if you have been raised as a Protestant, you probably immediately go, well, I know the church isn't a building. And I would tell you, you're right, but not so fast. Because if someone says, well, where do you go to church? My guess is you would say, on Round Top Road. And so you just described the church as a building. There's a sign out front that says Vineyard Northwest that is for this building. And so, yeah, the church isn't a building, but in all honesty, if we're honest, we talk about it like it is. And maybe we should think through that. Maybe that's something we should process. Just for good measure, to help if you are new to the idea that the church isn't actually a building, or at least it's not defined by a building or something like that, here's a great, here's a great little verse that describes the early church in Acts 2. Acts 2.46 says, Day by day, attend, attending the temple together at a building, yeah, sure, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. It's interesting is the description in the early church is not that church isn't in any way associated with a building. Like they're all like, let's go to the temple together, right? So there is some sort of a building association, but the, the picture is contained is almost like it can't be contained in a building, like it's spilling out. You know, it's like, oh, they did go to the temple, but they, it just like wasn't enough. So they're also in their homes and, and, it's, and it's day by day and it's like always happening. It's this thing that's kind of like woven into the rhythm of their life that sure includes a specific place, but it's not limited to that place. In fact, it's kind of not limited to any place. Sort of what it feels like, at least. So, okay, church isn't a building. Maybe we should rename our things. I don't know. I've always thought it's interesting, you know, there's some... Uh, places that call their buildings like kingdom halls and things like that, which that feels a little weird to me. Uh, I'm not saying we should go with that, but I don't know. I've kind of wondered, like, hmm, maybe, maybe you should come uh, up with a different name for this thing. I'm not sure. Okay, here's another one, which we act like, but we would say we don't believe. Um, so I would say we a little bit believe it, at least. And that is this, that the church is an organization that... This has become more common in the uh, last, I don't know, few decades in American church where there's been a lot of focus on uh, leadership. And um, what winds up happening in the church is an organization picture is that, interestingly, there's a conflating of what is this thing called the church with the American system that defines, like, I don't know, the American legal system that defines things like how organizations and corporations and so on operate. Now, you might go, well, I don't believe the church is an organization, and I would say, well, hold on, because your spiritual leader's job's job description is to run an organization, right? I mean, that's his job description. So we can't entirely say we don't believe the church is an organization. Otherwise, like, why is that his job? 
right? So somehow, again, church is kind of caught up with this thing called an organization, and I'm actually not here to tell you that that's all bad, right? I'm not like anti that. Sometimes people go, ooh, that doesn't feel good, right? No, that's okay. And you know why? It's because our American legal system has said it's okay to have a legal entity called the church to facilitate ministry. And more happens because of that. And that's good. So it's not necessarily bad that we have these organizations. It's not necessarily bad that Van and, and the leadership team, that their job is to, to steward this organization, et cetera, and, and all that. That's all good, right? The issue is if we conflate that thing with whatever the scriptures contemplate as a church. Because I'll tell you, in the first century, there was no registered 501c3. And I'll tell you that right now, in China or Iran or North Korea or many parts of the world, there are no registered government organizations. And so, an organization is fine. I'm not anti-organization, but it's not the essence of what's happening here. It sort of grows out of the essence, or maybe even I could say it helps facilitate the essence of it, but it's not what it actually is. How you manage that interface is important. Otherwise, you might do things like conflate that the best CEO should be the best spiritual leader, things like that. In Acts 6, there's an interesting uh, little situation that pops up, and I'm not going to um, dive into it for time's sake, but the um, Greek-speaking believers come to the apostles, and they say, we've got a problem. The widows who aren't Jewish are getting neglected compared to the widows who are Jewish when it comes to the way the community is caring for them. And the apostles have this interesting response they actually intentionally divest organizational authority away from them. They say, oh, it's, it's actually not right for us to get caught in the structuring and administrating of the solving of this problem. So let's get these seven. They're full of wisdom. They're great. Let's empower them to solve this problem because our contribution needs to be the prayer and the preaching of the word. This is a really interesting thing. They're trying to avoid organizational authority. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm not here to knock on organizational authority. I'm just trying to parse apart, like, what is it we actually behave like here? Because, you know, if that whole story is true, the day might come when we need to rethink exactly how organizations and the church work. I don't know. It would be good to at least have the grid to have that conversation, wouldn't it? <clears throat> okay, last red herring, and then we'll get to um, something that looks like the church is. This is the one that might step on toes, but that's what I love to do. <laughs> You've probably heard it said that the church is not a place, the church is a people. And so what we often define is the church as the people of God. Anybody else ever heard that? I've heard that like a lot of times. I'm here to throw a grenade and to tell you that's not what the church is. And the biggest reason I say that is because when we do that, we actually substitute one New Testament idea for another 
And that confuses us then forward when we read the text. The Bible has an incredibly clear word for the set of people that are following God. It uses it like over a hundred times. It's very obvious that this word is what that means, and that word is the saints. The saints are the people of God. And over and over and over and over again, the New Testament articulates that. It does not say the church is the people of God. It says the saints are the people of God. And if we haven't thought about this carefully, we'll sort of muddy those waters together. They're not the same thing. And you actually see this. Perhaps the word that we translate church usually in Greek is some word like ecclesia or something like that. I'm not, I don't know how to precisely translate Greek words. Some people get, you know how some people like they say those things weird, like they actually know how they're supposed to be said. I don't know how it's supposed to be said. But the, the idea ecclesia, it, it existed in context before it was used to describe a religious function. It was actually an idea that came from the process of government. And it was connected to the Greek system of government, which um, operated by mostly autonomous city-states. And the ecclesia was a specific time when the citizens of the city, city sends of the city, would gather together and have conversations about the governmental direction of the city that they were helping to facilitate. The ecclesia, in this context, is not the citizens. That's the confusing thing we do. When we say the church is the people of God, we're confusing the citizens, which are the people who are coming together, with the ecclesia, which is the coming together unto a function. These are two different ideas. And what's kind of happened in church history is, you know, there have been times in church history where there's been sort of this push against organizational authority. Tip, biggest one of those happened with the, the Reformation, which I already mentioned in the 1500s. And what happened in that is there's this idea, it's like the church is not an institution, and so we have to define it as something else, so it's the people. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're swinging pendulum from here to here. <laughs> There's something else happening. The saints are the people of God. The church, and this is the key thing that's important. Uh, it's like the core idea here is this. We keep looking for the church to be a noun, for it to be a thing we can point to, a building, an organization, a people, Church is not described by a noun, it's described by a verb. Church is a thing that happens. It's not a thing you can point to. This is what's being described by that word ecclesia. The ecclesia in the Greek system, it was not the place the gathering happened. It was not the people who did the gathering. It was not the outcome of their governance. The ecclesia was the dynamic coming together of the people in such a way that governmental authority existed in that space and was stewarded while they were together. 
When they came together, something new came into existence that they stewarded together in that place. And then they would go apart. And that thing that they had co-stewarded as they gathered together, that thing kept rippling its way out through their lives in the city that they were working to help steward. The ecclesia was a thing that happened. It wasn't a place, it wasn't the people, it wasn't the way it was organized. And what I want to propose to us is that when the New Testament contemplates the church, it's contemplating a spiritual dynamic that happens among the people of God. It's contemplating the fact that when the people of God come together, there's, there is a, a thing that happens among us that's created dynamically that doesn't exist until we come together. And in that place and in that way, what happens is some spiritual governance can actually be negotiated. But that only happens as the saints come together in the name of Jesus. What happens is like some new spiritual pocket opens up that only exists when we come together. And when we're apart, that thing is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And this is why, um, for example, when, when the ideas of church and saints come together, in this is First. Uh, Corinthians 1, verses 2. This is kind of in one of the introductions that Paul gives. He says, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not about being a saint. It's about being the saints together. And what this whole COVID thing has highlighted to me is how blind we are to that in our church in America. The fact that anybody could even think that staying at home and watching church online is the same thing as being right here right now shows us that we're not even thinking in that category. We are completely blind to a spiritual reality. Because it's like, no, why would you stay at home? Because when we come together, there's a spiritual space that exists with us together, and God fills that space. And if you're there, you get to experience it and be a part of it. And if you're not, you don't. So like, why would you not come to church? Don't you wanna experience God? And people will go, well, I can't experience God at home. And our answer should be, not that way. You actually cannot. And they go, well, are you saying something about me? No, I'm saying something about how the saints work. When the saints come together, there's a God among us thing that does not happen when you're not together with the saints. And you're not made to just experience God in you you're also made to experience God among you. And if you don't experience God among you, that's not good for you. And it also probably makes you not effective or helpful because that spiritual governance is connected to that God among you. So sure, you want to keep going to church, that's fine. You'll just be useless. 
I, I mean, you have the choice to be useless. <laughs> you know, ultimately, between you and the Lord, I suppose. But <laughs> church is a thing that happens among us. And Jesus actually talks about this all the time. Look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the vision that John has. There's all of these different lampstands, just a church, and Jesus is described as the one who walks among the lampstands. Jesus even puts it this way. He makes it, he, he drives it all the way down to this level where he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Where two or three get together in the name of Jesus, Jesus becomes the fourth. He's actually tangibly present there in a way that's not the same if it's just, you know, me doing my thing. And what happens is that God among us thing, which is this thing that we've been blinded to, it's a category that we've been like not thinking of, that God among us thing actually kind of sweeps up in us and catches us up into something that is actually strongly connected to this story, this project, that is what God's doing in the world. Now, as a, a physics nerd, I always like pictures and visualizations that sort of point to this kind of thing. So I want to show you guys a, a quick video that I think is a great visualization of this. And I wish I could like actually do this in front of you. I, if I had more time and energy and whatever, I, I could have. But it's easier to pull it up on YouTube. And here's what's going to happen, okay? We're going to have, you'll see when we look, there's going to be um, a set of metronomes. Metronomes are those little click, click, click things when you, um, when you play music that help you keep the tune. In this, in this picture, I want you to watch what happens as the metronomes wind up being put in a place where they can sort of experience each other a little bit. And I want you to be thinking about it this way. Each of those metronomes is like you and me. We have a spiritual rhythm and a spiritual click, click, click that God is doing in us. But what happens when a bunch of us who are independently experiencing our click, 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 because you do have your own journey with God, what happens when those things are brought together in the same time and in the same space? Let's go ahead and roll it. So look at this, they're all, they're all going different ways. You can hear it, it's messy, sort of all over, right? Oh, something just changed, you hear that? Oh, it's getting messy again. This is relational tension, right? Oh, wait for it, wait for it, keep listening, it's not there yet. You hear that? Now there's one beat. And you know what didn't have to happen? None of them, none of them had to give up their own beat. They, they, didn't, they didn't have to, in a sense, it's like 
you know, it's not that you have to compromise what God's doing in you. It's that when, when it comes together, what God's doing in me and what God is doing with you and what God's doing with them, it, it all interacts in, in the kind of way that sweeps us up into something bigger than ourselves. And if you think about it, aren't those the moments in this whole thing called church that are so life-giving? When you're like, I just feel like I'm being sort of caught up in something bigger than myself, like I'm a part of something. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? Like, like, like I belong somewhere, like, like I just fit here. And it's kind of attached to the other people, but it's not like I think of it first with the other people. You know, it's not like I can look at it and be like, well, that, that's really van that's happening here. No, it's actually something that's happening among us, between us. And if you've ever experienced that, now, now people experience that in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different forms. Sometimes people experience that sense of, of being caught up in something bigger at, at like Comic-Con <laughs> or NASCAR. You know, like that's really what we're actually looking for when we say we're looking for community. We're actually looking to be caught up in something. We're looking for transcendence with other people involved. That's really what we usually mean. But the message of the New Testament is that transcendent space can actually be filled with God himself. That that transcendence doesn't just have to be something of this world where it's, it's filled with whatever Comic-Con's about, you know, or it's filled with the NASCAR experience, because what, what will happen, believe it or not, and this is kind of a weird thought, but it seems like it's what the Bible says, is that something will fill that transcendent space. The question is just, is it God or not? This is why Paul says things like, be really careful about getting close to human philosophy and ideology, because it can be a snare that that spirits can ensnare you with. What, what he's saying in Colossians 2.8, go read it if you want. What he's saying is, he's saying, look, if you step into the collective space of that ideology, you're going to find there's a spirit there. This is why we have to cast upon every other story that we have. Because there is a transcendent space that God fills. And once you've experienced that, what I usually find is that people spend the rest of their life trying to find their way back to it. You'll hear these stories, like, like I was part of this group this time, and it was so vibrant, and it was so alive, and it was like we were on this adventure together with God, and people started, I mean, it was like people would just show up, and they'd just take out cash, and they'd just give it to people. And people would just come, and they just get they just get saved, and and it was like people would get healed, and it was like I don't even have the words to describe it. I just know it was the most life giving experience I've ever had, and I was accelerated towards God in a way I've never been accelerated towards God for. Those are the words they'll describe. That's the thing called church. That's what it's about. That's what's happening. And yes, to the extent that this building helps facilitate that among us as we come together, praise God for the building. To the extent that the organization helps facilitate that, praise God for the organization. To the extent that we as people are a part of that, I love it, that's fantastic. But the thing that matters is, are we tuned in and is God having the space to be among us and to sweep us up into what he's doing? 
That's the thing that needs to, to, to persevere as we begin to wander out and find a new shape, so to speak. That's the thing that's got to stick. And so, where, what about all of this? Like, okay, Putty, you're excited and you've showed me a metronome and for some reason I wanted to cry when they all clicked together. <laughs> Why did you get emotional? Because that's what you're made for and you know it. That's, that's what your heart's actually asking for. I show you a picture of it and something happens inside of you. Okay, so... What does the future look like? I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to have a great answer. I'm going to go try some things. I know, I know your leadership here is excited about trying new things. The truth is, is like we all got to try something. Somebody will find it. You know, some, some people will die of dysentery on the trail. Oregon Trail is an Oregon Trail reference. I love that, love that game. Right? Hopefully not you guys, you know. Some people, some people will die of dysentery. But the point is, is we got to be moving, right? And I don't know where that goes. But here's, here's what I want to say is important for us here today, knowing that we can trust the Holy Spirit to guide our experimentation and to fill up our, our efforts and all of that. But the takeaway for today, two things. The first is this. We need to work to perceive this reality and to begin to articulate it. Like, wh once I've... Once I've explained this, like you go, oh, yeah, I actually do know what that is. And then you turn around and you look at the people who are watching church in your pajamas, and you go, oh, yeah, they're, they're definitely not experiencing that. Begin to sort of own and identify this as a category. Like, Maybe you don't go home and think about how good the speaker was, or wasn't, <laughs> in this case, <laughs> how good the worship was, or whatever. Maybe you go home and you say, man, on a scale of one to ten, how much was it clear God was among us this morning? Right? Maybe that's the thing that, that, that we begin to turn over and work with inside, because we need to develop a new mental category to be able to take this thing forward, the, the God in us thing. And the other thing I would say, and this is what's really cool and really challenging about this, is this idea winds up, when you think it through, challenging all of us with a higher degree of responsibility than the categories we presently have. Because here's the thing, if God can be among us, who's to say that has to only exist in times like this? What if God is supposed to be among your family and you as parents' job is to steward the God among you and your kids? What if God can be among us as we gather as believers in a workplace, regardless of whatever church you go to on Sunday morning, maybe that same click, 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 click can be embedded in a place where it's not described with a 501c3 name attached. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with that organization. And if that's the case, 
then the question is, well, how are you working to facilitate God among us in the place that God has already placed you to get a paycheck at? See, we don't have to try and divvy up this thing. That's kind of what winds up happening. Like, people get, oh, I'm so excited about the Holy Spirit, and then there's all of these conversations about how can I be part of the church. That's cool, and that's good, and I'm not trying to, to shut that down. But the, the sort of bigger point is that it's like, th- why is this the only time we perceive God among us? Because I think that God among us is supposed to happen in the temple and house to house, and I would add, and workplace to workplace, because in that day, you worked in your house. So maybe God among us is something we're all responsible for somewhere. (laughs) Maybe you are the pastor of your workplace. Maybe you are the pastor of your family. And and what are you doing about that? Because doing nothing isn't gonna facilitate that. Trust me, ask them. Hey, if we do nothing in our role as spiritual leaders here, does that like facilitate like things happening here? Like if you just like decide golf all day, every day, does this does this keep happening this way? No. Right? God among us is wide open territory for all of us. And God's already placed you where he wants you to work in that. It's, it's not about how do we get all of them in the one place where God among us can happen. It's how do we learn God among us here so we can plant it everywhere out there. And that's all of our job. So, we're in an interesting cultural moment. I don't think it has to be a bad one. I think it can be a beautiful one. I think we can pivot, and I think we can become something it's actually fresher and more vibrant and more alive than we have been. And I'm excited to see that happen. I'm gonna go try and experiment with it. I wanna invite you guys to do the same. So let's stand and, and let's pray. And I think, Wilson, should I, should I tell people that they need to go get kids? or Just, just when I say amen, okay, all right. <laughs> we, can, we can go with that. Jesus, I I thank you for the way that you have been among us as we have gathered this morning. I thank you for the way that that you have filled this place and you have filled this time. And, And Jesus, I'm just, I'm cognizant, I'm aware that it's not just us here. You're in between us and around us. And Lord, we thank you for that and we welcome that. And we do say, God, we want to be swept up into that story and that project, that thing about how you're, you're pulling us all together into you. That's so fresh. That's so exciting. Jesus, I just lift each and every one of us up right now. And I ask God, would you open our eyes and our hearts to this spiritual reality? God, this thing is every bit as real as the building or the people or the whatever. God, but but it's hard for us to see it. Our eyes can't see it clearly well. But Lord, you can open our eyes. Would you open our eyes to see the reality of that thing? And would you open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to have the wisdom to see where is the place that you're calling us to invest in God among us, God? 
in our home, in our workplace, in our church family, in our, our, our rotary club, in our neighborhood, in our wherever it is, Lord, where are you calling us to invest in God among us? We are eager to see that leak out into every corner of Cincinnati, Lord. Lord, we accept that, that calling. We accept that responsibility. We say, yes, Lord, if you'll show us how, then we'll do it. We're in, God, we're in. Why not? Lead us down the Oregon Trail, God. We want to go there with you. We want to go there with you. Thank you for meeting with us, God. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Now I think we have a prayer team. Do we have a prayer team? Um, Wilson's gonna say Yeah, could the prayer team come on down? We would love to pray for you for anything you need. So there'll be a bunch of people down here ready to pray, but thanks a lot, Putty. Come on, we receive it. Go grab your kids, that'd be great. Just one last thing, I wanna highlight something specifically for the prayer team. If you're here and you're not walking with God, your metronome is still, it's not clicking. You're meant to be part of this clicking thing. You're invited to be part of this clicking thing. It's open to everybody. Nobody's excluded. But what it requires is it requires coming to Jesus and giving our lives to him. And I just want to invite, if there's anybody here who's not clicking this morning, please come up and talk with someone up here. They would love to have a conversation with you about that and what that means.